Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Triple R. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. You are listening to 3 Triple R, and we've got an hour of science for you now. In the studio with me, virtually, of course, uh, the amazing, uh, one of my favorite teams, Dr. Jen. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Lovely to see you. It's Hear good to, you, I should say. <laughs> it's good to kind of see each other. Uh, Chris KP, I uh, actually kind of like the video thing of you, Chris. The distance uh, works well for me of you. Uh, well, I'm glad you're happy. Uh, and uh, yeah, obviously, I live to make you happy. But I'm sure you tell all the teams that they're one of your favourite teams. Well, they are all one of my favourite teams. <laughs> so, that's what we call precision and not accuracy, buddy. Um, <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Dr. Ewan, good morning. Morning. Your, uh, your Zoom background freaks me out because it looks like this giant snakehead's about to gobble your head up. People can't see it, but it's just a little disturbing. Although it does take away the emphasis from your mullet. What's wrong with the mullet? It's all the rage. It's all the rage right now. It's coming back. So I don't know. <laughs> the next haircut's coming back. Maybe the flat top. But yeah. yeah, yeah, maybe. I think one of the reasons why people are so outraged about hairdressers not being available is the mullet. Um, that's yeah. that's what we're really combating. There is you know the the rise of the mullet, which is um, yeah, I wouldn't um. I wouldn't worry about the giant snakehead biting his head off. It's the mullet from behind him that's going to get him. <laughs> <laughs> Just climb over the back of his head and jump on him. Uh, anyway, let's get into some science news, folks. Uh, Chris KP, do you want to start us off? You're looking excited. Oh, I certainly can, and I certainly am. Um, so I wanted to uh, – I, I saw a bit of a uh, – it's one of those headlines that you just know is a little bit uh, overhyped because it's just doesn't, it doesn't stand up to any kind of observation. But I was interested anyway, and that was this story about the moon being rusty. Now, you'd have thought that if the moon was rusty to any significant extent, we would have noticed by now. Um, <laughs> and and the, the bottom line is we hadn't noticed – but it still might be a little bit. Uh, now, rust, uh, or at least one of the uh, one of the, the the minerals that that causes rust, is hematite, which is iron oxide. Uh, and to make this, you you need three things. You need iron, which the moon has, but you also need oxygen and you need water. Now, for a long time, we didn't know, or at least we weren't convinced that there was water. Uh, but we found water on the moon in ice, at least uh, in 2018. I think they confirmed that. So, so that's uh, that's two out of three. But that's you know, in chemical terms, two out of three is still a bit ordinary. Um, mm. You need the third bit, uh, and the and the uh, and the oxygen bit was just nowhere to be seen. Furthermore, for this reaction to happen, uh, for this oxidation reaction to happen, produce the iron oxide that you need. Um, what you don't want is hydrogen because that actually has the reverse, you know, the re- reverse. Um, uh, effect and of course the moon like everything else that's anywhere near the sun is getting pumped for, with um, full of solar wind which is full of hydrogen so the idea that there'd be enough oxygen there to do anything like produce the rust that we're talking about just seems really really slim and yet it was observed and it was first observed um, by the chandrayaan one uh, moon mineralogy mapper that picked up this uh, this hematite signal and they all went crazy for how could this possibly happen well it turns out that it may, in fact, be us that's doing it, which is kind of a cool idea when you think that, you know, we're, we're constantly next to the moon and it's constantly, you know, visible to us to some extent. It's nearby all the time. 
but we often affect that the effects go both directions and it looks like it might be earth that's actually providing this little bit of oxygen because trailing behind the earth is a bit of our own so we have the a magnetosphere which is basically the, the magnetic field around the earth um and as we whip around the uh, the sun the, it has there's this tail the magneto tail and that's basically it's like a 385,000 kilometer long tail that's dragging around behind us inside which little bits of oxygen get ripped off the atmosphere and can go into anything nearby like the moon so it turns out that the moon's got its own oxygen uh, it turns out it has a bit of water we're giving it a little bit of oxygen and in the, under the right conditions this means we can start to actually make rust on the moon and the most common places you find it are on the surfaces of the moon that are actually facing the earth so it makes perfect sense that it happens and over billions of years um we're either making the moon rusty or maybe we're just get, adding a little bit of you know feature wall um to our <laughs> to our nearest neighbor <laughs> Yeah, I think it's it's, it's fascinating you know, the things that come up because in, in all the time when uh, you know, back in the, the late '60s and early '70s when we had you know up to twelve people walking around, yeah. no one came back yes. and said, "There's a shit ton of rust up here. Yeah. What's going on?" <laughs> yes. So we're talking about very small amounts by you know, tiny amount, a very um, long period of time, over a, a very long amount. period of time. But uh, you know, this idea of someone sort of you know. Armstrong picking up what would look like a rusty old car part and saying, oh, look what I found. <laughs> Not quite. Yes. But, it ain't Mars yet. It ain't Mars yet, yeah. But still, uh, interesting stuff. It's interesting how you can get all those components together, though, from so many different sources mm. and manage to do that piece of chemistry. And as you say, over a long period of time, um, this happens. That's what impressed and, me. Yeah, yeah a bunch of chemists yeah. going, it's not possible, it's not possible, but I'm looking at it. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Well, you know, uh, chemists, we're going to love them. I love them. They're great. Oh, of course, of course. Dr. Jen, what do you got for us? Uh, look, I'm going to stick with the space theme because I think we can all uh, remember times when we've watched videos of astronauts having to run on treadmills with all the things holding them down because, you know, they're in zero gravity. They have to run or they're doing resistance training. And I, I just think it looks seriously cool. But, of course, it's not just cool. It's actually really important because if you're spending time in space without any gravity, the muscle wasting and loss of bone density is actually really bad. And I hadn't realised quite how bad it was. When I was doing some reading, it's been shown that astronauts can lose 20% of their muscle mass in two weeks. Yep. I mean, that is massive. So this is obviously a serious problem. And that leads me to tell you about a group of very special mice. So at the end of last year, a group of 40 mice got to go to the International Space Station. How cool is that? Tourism for mice. Did they come back? Yeah, they came back only 33 <laughs> days later. They landed Yay. safely on Earth. Sorry, I just, whenever, whenever an animal gets sent into space, my first question always, did it come back? <laughs> Yeah, no, they, they came back very, very well and healthy. I haven't seen any photos from the trip of, that they took. You know, I haven't read any kind of travel journals or anything. But, <laughs> but the reason they got to go, the reason these special mice got to go was because uh, half of them were actually mutant mice. And these mice are very special. If you want to Google it, you just have to look up mighty mice or mighty mouse. Basically, these are seriously buff mice because they've got double the muscle mass of a normal mice, of a normal mouse. And they've done that because they've been genetically engineered to lack a particular gene called the myostatin gene, which is there to keep the growth of, of uh, muscle in check. So if you don't have this gene, you end up being this really buff mouse. 
And so they went to space for 33 days as part of an experiment to try and understand more about this loss of muscle mass that happens to um, astronauts. And the cool thing is that these mighty mice, they didn't lose any of their muscle mass um, or bone mass during the trip to space. So they essentially had exactly the same body metrics when they came home as all of the mice that didn't get to go to space at all at NASA. Whereas the control mice that went to space lost 18% of their muscle mass and bone mass during the trip. So this is pretty cool. And they also treated (laughs) some of the normal mice, some of the control mice that went to space. They treated them with a drug that's designed to block a couple of hormone pathways, one of which is the myostatin pathway. Uh, And essentially what this tells us is, you know, it's a long way off from human trials, but we've identified these particular um, hormone pathways that could be really important in minimising the effects of space travel on people. But, you know, that's all well and cool for the very small number of humans who are ever going to go into space. Mm. What excites me much more is think of all the people on Earth who suffer from muscle wasting, whether it's because they've got muscular dystrophy or cancer or AIDS. You know, there are lots of conditions that cause muscle wasting, osteoporosis, obviously, for bone loss. Uh, and this is potentially leading, going to be leading to treatment for people who have really, you know, real difficulty with muscle wastage on Earth. And yeah. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, even just a- ageing. I mean, you, you, you do lose your muscle mass with ageing. But I know Chris KP, like, like me, has already Googled CRISPR gene therapy for buffness. Uh, yeah, totally. And uh, there's some interesting results coming up. Uh, you know, <laughs> we'll be- interesting is very flattering. I'm wondering, <laughs> do, do, do astronauts, do they just really get you know muscled up before they i mean i know they exercise where they're out there but do they try and muscle up before they go as well well there's there's a variety of um things that they do i mean most astronauts actually work pretty heavily in space while they're doing it but if you ever and you know we we interviewed terry Burtz just not that long ago actually just a few Mm. weeks back and he's oh by the way he's coming back in october we're going to have a total geek off about sci-fi films that's going to be the whole show just talking about sci-fi films with with an astronaut (laughs) but um you know one of the things that's important of course is that they do you know whenever they do spacewalks or anything it's an incredibly labor-intensive procedure Mm. like the idea of being able to move your body and so forth when you're outside the craft is incredibly difficult and often they can only do it for 15 20 minutes or so because it's Mm. too exhausting so they do do a lot of um you know resistance training and so forth while they're in space but you know this is one of the big um factors for traveling to mars you know it's hard enough going going up to the iss for a few months but if you're on a protracted trip and there's no coming down if you have problems because some of them have cardiovascular you know changes in that as well then it's pretty dangerous stuff. So our bodies aren't meant to be in low mm. gravity. They really aren't. So Well, and particularly all this stuff that's been put out there that seems partly sci-fi but partly maybe plausible, that in order to get to Mars safely, given how long it's going to take, and so you don't have to have too much food or water, the idea of trying to put people into a state of hibernation, you know, that's not good for your muscles, not moving no, for, no. for a year or something. So it seems like it's pretty cool that we're learning more about yeah, just how important these, these hormone yeah. pathways are in muscle mass. It's very cool stuff. Dr. Ewan, what's happening with the uh, – it's going to be ecology environment report of some type. I can smell it. <laughs> it is. Um, I'm going to take us away from space and bring us to uh, Alaska, essentially, in marine um, realm. And a really seriously, I think, a very seriously impressive piece of research has just come out in science. And it's a continuation of a story, actually, about sea otters and the importance of sea otters and ecosystem collapse. And so 
what's really fascinating about this study, and some of you might know, that there's been this sort of long-running story about how the loss of sea otters, largely from you know many, many years ago due to um, hunting for, for fur, and basically those have disappeared from the system in some areas, and that led to increases in urchin numbers, sea urchins. Now, the problem with sea urchins is they eat kelp, and that, of course, is a really important um, habitat component for a whole bunch of other species. It also helps to store a huge amount of carbon which can help us to um, combat climate change. So when we lose kelp forests, we lose a whole bunch of other things as well. But what's fascinating about this study is that they've just shown that what's happening now is the sea urchins have run out of kelp to eat and what they're now eating is coralline algae. Now, coralline algae actually lay down um, calcium carbonate-type skeletons as a way of protecting themselves from grazing. But what they've shown is that because of the warming of the ocean, and acidification of the ocean anything of course with calcium carbonate we know with basic chemistry if you put acid with calcium carbonate not so good it breaks down right and so this is what they've shown by actually going back in time they've actually sectioned calcium carbonate and i didn't know this myself but you can actually count rings in coralline algae like you can with a tree and they've shown that um through periods of time that there's been these big events of grazing by um, sea urchins, but what's happening now is that's increasing rapidly, so mm. much so by about 40 to 60%. But it gets better than that in terms of the science. So they actually took urchins and coralline algae into experimental conditions and they tried to recreate um, increases in temperature and acidification versus historical levels and they replicated basically what they observed in the coralline algae's growth rings. And scarily, worse than that, they went forward in time and imagined a scenario in the future under climate change predictions and said, well, what would happen if, you know, it continued to warm and so forth? And on top of that already, you know, 40 60% increase, more than another sort of 20 or 30%. So essentially what it's showing is that if you lose top predators from the system, which we know is happening in a whole bunch of places because of the mass extinction crisis and a whole bunch of other reasons, combine that with climate change and you've got these two threats that are basically leading to the collapse of a whole ecosystem. So I think it's just it's really fascinating science in terms of, you know, the sort of the field observations and the experimental work. Um, it's quite profound, I think, in showing just how, how, um, how the loss of one species, in this case um, sea otters, can really lead to quite dramatic effects mm. right throughout a pretty large ocean ecosystem. So, yeah, it's, it's uh, not a good news story, but I think it's, um, the, I guess the encouraging part is that we know that we can reintroduce sea otters in some areas and that has, actually has happened. And that can potentially lead to either a dampening of that effect or even a reversal where the sea urchin numbers come under control and you can therefore restore those reefs. Yeah. So, yeah, it's really impressive work. It's really interesting to me, Ewan, because the um, you know the sea urchin is one of those particular critters where in, in many cases when we, when we think of imbalance in ecosystems, something else might also come into play and take care of that imbalance. So something else would eat yeah. the, the thing. But I can't imagine a lot of things eating sea, sea urchins. <laughs> like, in fact, I'm, I'm, I'm quite impressed that there is a species that eats them. You yeah, know, like, I mean, yeah. Crayfish and some fish do eat sea urchins and so forth, but yep. clearly the um, the sea otters are really good at it. And yeah. um, in in their absence, they just really reach really high numbers. Mm. No, it's a big problem. Well, it's one of those things where I suppose we we need to um, look at all of these. I mean, it, it almost seems, we've talked about this before, but it almost seems sometimes sometimes where we should always start with the apex predators and see how they're going, because everything yep. everything sort of falls away from that point. 
And, you know, whenever you, whenever I hear a story on the news about a shark attack, I think, oh, don't cull, don't cull, don't cull. Yeah. You know, like, really, is this, is this going to happen again? You know, it seems like it's, you know, always happens. Well, and encouragingly, most people who are actually unfortunately attacked by sharks actually advocate for their yeah. conservation. And I think that's really important to remember. So, yeah. Yep. Well, folks, uh, I think uh, we're going to take a break in a moment for some news, but it's imp- uh, we've done news for, for uh, some music, but uh, we we do have, uh, of course, our Radiothon is still sort of going on in its silent mode where you've got up until the 30th of September, 5 p.m. that Wednesday, to actually subscribe to Triple R, and you can do that online via the website, rrr.org.au. Uh, tough year for the station, so we really do need your support. So if you haven't already subscribed and you'd like to do that that would be very helpful to us uh in addition of course everyone who has subscribed a big thank you to you because we've heard those coming through during the week and so forth outside of our normal radiothon period which is great you're still in the running for the prizes so um thanks so much for that but well team uh i will see you in a few weeks i suspect it's um it's still weird not having you here in the studio with me but uh still a lot of fun so thanks guys Thanks, Shane. Take it easy. Yeah. Folks, uh, here's some music and we'll be back in a moment. Believe it or not, we're going to talk about COVID on the show. I've tried to avoid that all year, but uh, we had to do it sooner or later. So uh, today's the day. Um, We're going to talk to someone who's leading a very important task force uh, for Australia. Triple R. Uh, and we're back, folks. It's Einstein the Go going through to Blar time. We were hoping to have a guest on uh, talking about the COVID task force, but I don't know. Didn't come online. So uh, thankfully, I've still got the illustrious team uh, from, from our news group on, Jen, Chris KP, and Ewan are still hanging around. And guys, I thought we would do uh, one of the little fun things that we do on occasion to fill in when we are desperate. And Chris KP, I think, probably knows where this is going because he's done it a few times before. But it's this idea that given what we're seeing right now, if you could go back 50 years what technology, what what ideas, what concepts in science would you be taking with you in order to, uh, you know, get us into better shape for today? And Ewan, I, I'm going to just put it out there for you straight away. It's going to be something to do with the environment for you. So just, just focus, <laughs> focus your mind in that space. Don't think COVID. Just focus your mind on the environment. But uh, Chris KP and Jen, I think, are going to be a bit more uh, out there. I've thrown this at them with about 10 seconds notice, folks. So let's just see how good these communicators are. But I, I think they'll be on top of it. Chris KP, you're always good at making stuff up. Um, I mean, we do it almost weekly. What, what do you got for mm. us? What, what would you be taking back 50 years in terms of just uh, science, science ideas? Well, so, and I'm, I'm going to drift towards tech rather than science, I think. And, and, and I, I, anyone who knows me is not waiting for anything profound, so you won't be disappointed. Because uh, I was thinking 50 years ago is what, 90, it's the 70s, right? Yeah. Uh, give or take, 60s, 70s. Do you know one of the biggest changes that I personally experienced in that period of time, that I've been a bit, very late in that period of time, but I'd love to brought back, is just the incredible technology that has literally changed the nature of cricket in terms of the bats. <laughs> now, it's, and it's basically how you use, it's the materials you use and how you put them together. Because I'm telling you, if you if you are of that vintage, if you're of the 40, 50, 60, 70 plus age, you know what it's like to take out your, frankly, crappy little oiled bat 
and swing with all your might and maybe with a bit of good timing you'll get four runs out of it. These days, you, your bat barely looks at the ball and it flies over the boundary. It's extraordinary to experience. We just so if lost, I could take uh, back one of those bats. We just lost 50% of our audience, maybe more. Um, <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Chris. <laughs> you know, to, to jump on your bandwagon there, because I, I love this idea. I actually I actually do have a bat at home which I've kept from my childhood. And, and the reason Same. I've kept it is to show people just how much we did this as kids because the bottom of it is about an inch shorter than when we bought it because it's just worn down. But <laughs> yeah, on yeah. this bat, it's a fantastic because this comes to your point, it says very in very bold text, non-oil bat. As yes. in, if, you aren't, if you're too stupid, you might accidentally oil this bat and then the beautiful coating we've put on it to prevent its need to be an oiled piece of wood will come off. Do not oil this bat. Yeah. And so yeah. there was that transition where all of a sudden because, the technology... But you, think about, you think about any kind, of, any kind of physical undertaking, I'm thinking sport generally, where there's always someone who stands out as being just you know, ahead of the pack. It's Bradman or whoever it is, or yep. Maccabi Diva, or there's always the, the one or two that are just ahead of everybody else. I'll tell you what, if I could walk back with, you know, with, with a modern cricket bat, I'd be that guy. Yeah, well, with the exception of, of like me, you probably wouldn't be able to lift it because these days, yeah, I've got these, no skill either. You know, they're they're holding <laughs> holding uh, something akin to a tree trunk. You know, it's like they're not that heavy though. Work. They're remarkably not heavy for for the amount of material in them. If you like, for the amount of uh, the amount of volume, they're, they're not surprisingly not dense. Yeah, oh, geez, uh, when when you started talking about that, and you know, I'm a bit of a cricket lover, and, and sorry, folks, but I, I thought you were going to talk about the incredible high resolution cameras and so forth, and all that sort of stuff, the ball that's tracking and all that technology, applicable. which is amazing. You know, like, and we usually yeah. see it in tennis, we see it in all sorts of things these days. Yeah. I thought you were going there, but you just pulled out bats. Well, okay, yeah, yeah sorry, cool. um, I told you not to be disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit disappointed, <laughs> Doctor Jen. Wow. Got- Even by my standards, it must be. Really- Ordinary, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jen. What do you got? Well, I think. I mean, I think that question just puts me into a total headspin, Shane. Because I feel like if I could go back fifty years, I would just want to warn everybody about the the crap that we've done to the world. You know, I would want to find a way to ensure that someone like Trump could never become a leader. I would want to find a way to ensure that we we wouldn't completely destroy the world by burning fossil fuels. I'd want to try and convince everybody not to cut down trees. I mean, I sort of feel like I go down the communication pathway. I would want to take whatever knowledge we have now, which I think is still pretty rudimentary, to be honest, but Mm. whatever knowledge we have now about how to convince people of things and some of our knowledge about kind of the the, um, importance of narrative when it comes to convincing people of things, I would want to take that back and just try and prevent a whole lot of disasters. I mean... It's tempting to talk about medical stuff and say, you know, being able mm. to do organ transplants is extraordinary. Vaccines, life-changing. I mean, of course, you can pull out all of these medical things which are clearly uh, incredible. And if we could have done them sooner, then it could have changed so many things. But I don't know. I just feel this terrible sense of dread that I would want to go back and change the course of a whole lot of t- terrible human behaviour. I feel like I feel like you I would. <laughs> I feel like with with your with your skills and passion and that intent, you'd, you'd start a cult. <laughs> yeah. and, and what would be wrong with that, Chris? Chris oh, nothing. Chris, <laughs> Chris, how do you know that she hasn't already done? That? <laughs> hey, where do I sign? <laughs> Don't you guys just feel terrible about knowing what we've done to this? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Okay, yeah. But, but yeah spot on. Stop it. Like the the important question is, given what we know now given what we know about human greed and given what we know about lobby groups and given all the things we know about human psychology, could you stop it? Even if you went back, 
could you go back and say or do anything that would convince people mm. to not go down the same pathways? And I'm I'm not sure you could. I'm not sure you could either. Well, we're on we're on one of those we're on one of those pathways now, aren't we? And we keep telling exactly. people to not do it. Uh, the part one of the things I'm stuck on though, just to get off the track there for a second, Jen. I'm, I have to apologise to a lot of people out there if you're in the same sort of boat as me. Is that when Chris, for some reason, had to tell us that 50 years meant we were talking about the 70s? Because <laughs> I I still have it in my head whenever I say 50 years, it's sort of you know pre moon landings or something. Oh, and, uh, and all of a sudden, I'm thinking, hang on. Hang on, 1970, oh, that hurts a little bit. Um, <laughs> so you mean within my lifespan, oh, dear, I don't, I'm not sure I like that. <laughs> Next time you do this experiment, can you go back 100 years, please, so we, well, don't, we can yeah. think about something more distant? Or go yeah. back three years. Well, yeah, or just 12 months. Um, but I think the last time Chris and I did this, we went back 500. But then, you know, we, we realized shortly after saying we wanted to take our phones with us, we, we very briefly would run out of battery power and they would be useless. So, you know, it kind of went pear-shaped very, very quickly. But, uh, yeah. Now, doc, Dr. Ewan, what, what are we talking about? Oh, look, there's so many to choose from. And, you know, I'm glad that Jen sort of took the heat off me, really, in talking about doom and gloom because that makes my job easier. Um so I, I reckon I'd have a couple, actually, and um, I think one would be just modern genetic techniques. I think without doubt, like things mm. like next-gen next sequencing and so forth has really revolutionised what we can actually understand about so many species and, you know, even obviously in the health context as well, obviously. So I think it's very hard to argue against modern genetic techniques. Um, and the other one, I think, in terms of environmental assessment and understanding, you know, going back to what Jen was saying about the devastation that we've wreaked, and you'll appreciate this one, Shane, is the advances in satellite imagery and, and mm. what we can sense from afar is just breathtaking. So when you think about what mm. we can now do in terms of, you know, looking at the impact of fire, as an example, and measuring it in real time and understanding, you know, what, what's going on and habitat loss, whatever it might be. So I think those two things for me are fairly of course, profound. Both, both of those yeah. things, especially the satellite stuff, but both of those things would also require um, a, a pretty extensive, you know, you, have, you also take with you the computing power. Yeah, exactly. And that I, wasn't exactly. there either. And I was going to sort of touch on that. I, I think another massive one really is, you know, things like machine learning and, and, and processing big data, which again has sort of really taken off in the last decade or so. It's just completely changing the game and what we can do mm. and understand because, yeah, like you said, it's it's really been a challenge up until now. How do you make um, sense of all that data? So, mm. you know, those things combined, I think, are just uh, they're massive. With you know, without mm. sort of you know um, putting too fine a point on it. So, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that's very similar to the sort of things I was thinking about you and because to me, the the two things that really jump out at me, one was our telecommunications capabilities. So yeah. the the connectivity of the world. You know, if you if you think of what our connectivity was like, I mean, I remember even as a child writing letters to grandparents in other states yep. and so forth because it was mm. just too expensive to make phone calls all the time, and so you you would yeah. do this. Whereas whereas now our connectivity and you know, largely due to the uh, incredible advancements in the use of you know glass to make optical yeah. fibers. So the idea that you know this is one of the things that I find most fascinating. You you take a piece of glass that's basically about double the width of your hair, which uh, you can imagine how brittle that is, like how easy it is yeah. to break. Put a very special polymer coating on that 
and it's as strong as fishing line. In fact, the, the yeah. tensile strength of glass like that is, um, I think, exceeds that of steel. It's incredible. And so then you start laying these things across, you know, large landscapes, across um, oceans, and your telecommunications is working at the speed of light, which is just phenomenal. And I mean, you and you'd appreciate the fact that one of the big problems with laying these cables in Australia was actually one of our native animals would actually eat through them. The wombat was incredible <laughs> at destroying telecommunications cables, which, you know, other parts of the world didn't have. And we were like, you know, these wombats, and they weren't even the big wombats, you know, the ones we used to have a long time ago. Yeah, They'd probably <laughs> take, take out the telecommunications towers, but yeah, even normal wombats would would dig through these things, and yeah. you know that that's given us this connectivity across the world, and then you add to that the data transfers that we're talking yeah. about. And I was just uh, it was funny. I was, I was reminiscing recently. I pulled out of an old box my old Walkman, you know, my tape Walkman, and I thought I want. Yeah, no, it was no. I was I was high level mate. I bought an AWOL one, which were much better. Um, but uh, I pulled this thing out, chucked a, chucked a couple of AA batteries in it. Realised that, with the exception of Apple products, my headphone jack still worked. On, yeah, my new headphones still worked. I thought this is great. Put this tape in, started playing, and then thinking, I don't like this song. What do I do? And that was when I just cracked it and realised that we've come a long way with data. I'm, <laughs> I am not fast forwarding this thing. This is ridiculous. But um, yeah, the, the way in which we've we've able to you know, utilise data, move data around, and not just you know voice and video, you know that we're all using at the moment so in, you know incredibly effectively. But just even things like um, the, the sort of scientific data we're able to access and move around. And yeah. for anyone out there who wants to look at some amazing stuff from NASA, most of their data is publicly available. You can actually drag some of the data from Hubble and that down and process it yourself if you want. You know, a lot of anim- amateur yeah. astronomers that do that. All of this stuff is is only there because of our incredible telecommunications network. And you, you go back 50 years and you say, okay, what was that like? And in the early 70s, you know, the idea of a, you know, a dial-up modem was like a mythical unicorn well, we were all chasing so after. I've just done a, um, I've just done a quick search, uh, Dr. Shane, and mm. I, I can tell you that, um, that 1970 was the year that uh, that Apollo 13, amongst others, was, was launched. And yep. it's also the year that the first patent for a computer mouse was filed. Yep, yep. Amazing stuff! Amazing stuff. That's where we were. So, and and I feel I think it's, it's important for us to point out that even with these technological advances, and we think about that over the last fifty years, and where we've come in terms of data transfer and telecommunications and connectivity, um, if if you think back to that first image um, with that beautiful picture of the researcher. Uh, that young mm. young um, lady who was looking at it, you know, this amazing look on her face of yep. the black mm. hole. And yep. the, the data, if, if you look it up, folks, you'll find there's another picture of her sitting in front of a table with all the computer hard drives <laughs> that had to be yeah. put on a plane because oh. there was so much data to be analysed, it still couldn't be sent through our telecommunications network, yep. even as efficient as that network is right now. So, you know, I think we've still got a long way to go. Um, but the, the incredible amounts of data, and as you said, Ewan, with, with satellite um, imagery, it's just phenomenal. Not to mention the fact that you can just walk down the street now and know whether it's going to rain on you because yep. of the, you know, we take these things for granted. You know, yesterday morning I went for a walk. It was absolutely gushing down about 5Ks from where I was, but I was, I was, yep. I was good and I was confident because I knew it yep. wasn't going to rain on me. So we have all of this stuff, which is incredible. But, um, yeah, it's a... Uh, 
it's interesting how far we've we've come in just 50 years but uh, i suspect our technology has exceeded our our actual environmental learning and responsibilities <clears throat> as well you know we need to go a long way there to get that stuff on track and i think jen you you and you and both sort of hit that on the head that even if we could go back and give that information would we change our behavior would greed still overcome good decision making as it is currently doing today so yeah anyway that's a that's a good lead into our next guest who's going to be on after a little bit of music uh, i guarantee this one will be on no 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 doubt <laughs> <laughs> next time we're only going back five years guys. oh yeah <laughs> yeah otherwise we'll all, we all feel very old um but now we're going to be talking about a whole lot of uh, aspects of, of climate and so forth with our, our next guest which is going to be super interesting for a little while so thank you team for hanging in there and keeping me on track because uh you know talking to myself can be real dull sometimes not just for me but certainly for our audience so <laughs> chat, chat to you again soon all right folks we're going to take a, a break for some music and we'll be back in just a minute you're listening to einstein the go-go on three triple r triple r uh, welcome back, everybody. We are here on Einstein at Gago. We're talking about all sorts of stuff today. But uh, on the line now, we have Professor Andrew McIntosh. He is the head of the School of Earth, Atmosphere and Environment at Monash University. Good morning, Andrew. How are you going? Uh, good, thanks. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Oh, look, it's great to chat to you because, look, we've got about 15 minutes here because we've got a lot of stuff to cover. And I think uh, you and I were exchanging emails during the week and the, the list, I think, of things we needed to cover just kept getting longer. But we initiated this uh, contact because you have just put out a new paper um, published in Nature with regards to connecting greenhouse gas emissions to some of our melting glaciers. Now, I, I sort of had in my head that this had already been this connection been made a few times, but I'm mistaken there, aren't I? This is a relatively new thing we've been able to do. T- talk us through that. Uh, look, I mean. Glaciers are are thought by many as a kind of poster child for climate change, Um, and it's because they're so iconic with their images. Like you Mm. see a glacier today much smaller than it was 30 years ago or 100 years ago and think, wow, it's really changed and humans are responsible. But connecting the dots with the science is actually much harder than you might think, And, um, and, and ours is only the second study that has done that. Um, And, I mean, if you like, I can explain a little bit why, but, um, yeah, Yeah, it it might yeah, it, it might help by just starting off to just to tell you a little bit how glaciers work and that will make it easier to explain why it's hard to, to join the dots. Mm, yeah, sounds good. Yeah, okay. So um, so glaciers get, uh, they, they um, get nourished by snow every winter, um, a bit like a, a bank balance is a good analogy. It's your paycheck coming in, um, it's the snow during the winter. Uh, during the summer, they melt, um, and that's your spending. Uh, and if um, if your budget's neutral, then glaciers stay the same. Uh, if there's more snow, uh, then they start to grow. If there's more melt, they start to shrink, right? And that happens over a time frame of sort of years to decades. Um, but uh, but what we were looking at is um, years where just there's so much melt that everything's kind of obliterated. So it's just this special case of trying to understand what caused extreme glacier melt. Mm. And the only the only previous study that linked glacier changes to humans looked at the kind of decadal scale behaviour. So what drove that glacier retreat? Just published a few years ago, actually, in Science Magazine, showing that humans were responsible, but only for the last 30, 40 years or so of glacier retreat. So we took the, the next step to try to understand these extreme events. And what's pretty alarming is that these events are happening much more frequently now. So we, we looked at some glaciers in New Zealand, but actually if you look all around the world, you find examples where just the whole 
whole snowfield kind of gets obliterated during a summer and um, it leaves the glaciers very bare and sad and sort of mm. vulnerable to, to further change. Yeah. Yeah. And and just tell us a bit about the, the glaciers themselves in terms of their age. I I, I suppose one of the things we, we should all remember is that these things are moving beasts. So unlike certain sort of um, ice that you'd find in Antarctica and so forth in certain regions that's been there for a very, very long time, uh, glaciers are a bit different, aren't they? Is there, is there any really old ice involved or is it all sort of, you know, motioning down the mountainsides and so forth relatively uh, new? At- it, it really varies a lot depending on where you are. Uh, New Zealand's a great example. It has some very, very young ice. So mm. uh, some people are probably quite familiar with places like, you know, Franz Joseph Glacier and Fox Glacier. They're the well-visited ones on the West Coast. The ice down at the terminus is probably only about 30 or 40 years old, and it's travelled 10 kilometres during that time. Right. So many people think glaciers are slow, but those ones are really quick, and um they get so much snowfall up the top, it would make like the average Australian skier weep. I mean, it's like 10 mm. metres per year or something. And all that sort of transferred down a really steep slope. And at the bottom, they melt more than any glaciers on Earth. So it has this amazing kind of transfer of mass from top to bottom. Um, but if you go to a, you know, a, a place like, uh, I don't know, the Himalayas or um, the, the Arctic, uh, to, where the melt rates are a lot, a lot lower, you can find ice in glaciers that's thousands of years old. And people take ice cores from them just like they, they do from the polar regions. Right, yeah. Now, g- give us an idea of what the connectivity is between the, you know, these glaciers shrinking and, and the, the change in climate. Because I can imagine, I'm just thinking about this and what you just said, and obviously these things are travelling at a certain rate. That rate might change as a result of meltwaters that you know lubricate them from below and so forth. There may yeah. be less snow being dropped off at the top. Um, they're generally just hitting warmer water and melting faster, making room for them to travel down into the... You know, I mean, it seems like there's just every parameter on the go here. What, which ones are you connecting to climate or, you know, or maybe all of them? So, so for glaciers, mountain glaciers all around the world um, and the Greenland ice sheet, mm-hmm. it's the surface melting that's the main driver of loss. Okay. Uh, as it gets warmer, this is really direct. As it gets warmer, it melts more. So it's pretty straightforward. It makes it quite easy, relatively speaking, to estimate what they might do in the future. In Antarctica, where you've got a giant ice sheet, it's sliding on its bed much more. It's connected to the ocean. It's all the dynamics and sliding and stuff that are responsible for the ice loss down there. Mm. And working out what Antarctica is going to do is much more challenging than Greenland or glaciers because of the different way that they're responding to climate change. Yeah. And and, and with, with glaciers, is there – I can imagine there would be quite a – a difference depending on the latitude that you're finding these glaciers and just, you know, the, the sort of enormity of weather patterns that, that affect them. Uh, you know, some I, I'm assuming there are some parts of the earth where they're still relatively, you know, okay and protected, whereas in others they're more extremely sort of um, under threat. I, I would say that that's, um, that probably was the case a few decades ago that it's becoming increasingly rare to find glaciers that are not changing too much. Most are retreating. Uh, I mean, I, I wrote a paper a few years ago about a period of glacier advance in New Zealand, for example. Mm. Some glaciers, they're advanced in the 80s and 90s, um, but now they've just retreated so much they've gone way back beyond um, what they were. At, you know, they're the smallest they've ever been um, observed right. by, by by at least Europeans. Um, yeah, so they're yeah. really 
in, in the Himalayas, there are a couple of places where glaciers haven't changed too much yet, but it's mostly because they're really high and it's really cold up there. Um, it's not uniform across the whole Himalaya, it's just certain parts. Uh, so so it's becoming increasingly rare, Shane, and, and um, mm. in most places, glaciers are retreating and we see that signal nearly everywhere. Yeah. Now, in terms of the actual data that you collect, I mean, what, what's involved there? We were just talking to Dr. Ewan before you came online about you know some of the incredible advances in satellite imagery and so forth, but are you still getting out there on the glaciers themselves and doing measurements? I mean, what's that, what does that look like, getting the data you need? Wait. We, we do, a, we do a, a whole range of things. So we also use satellites. Um, in fact, in this study um, that was led by Lauren Vargo, she flies around in a light aircraft taking um, oblique aerial photos of glaciers at the mm. end of the summer. Uh, we also uh, go onto the glaciers and, and ski on them and uh, drill holes in and, and measure the height of stakes as they melt. You kind of need that evidence on the ground to validate the satellite or the aerial photo yep. um, uh, data that we collect. Uh, and we also use computer models. And, in fact, it's the combination of that data and modelling uh, that gives us the insight into what's causing glaciers to change. Yeah, right. And, I mean, we ha- I think we most of us have a good feel of the, sort of the size of these things, you know, sometimes, you know, tens of kilometres long and kilometres wide. But how deep are they? Uh, the, it's a good question. Um, it's hard to estimate, actually. So you need – you can't – the only way to see through them is with radar – Right. Uh, I often I often tell my students that you know we understand the surface of Mars better than we do mm. the underside of glaciers, but um, but in most cases mountain glaciers are a few hundred meters thick. Uh, Tasman Glacier in New Zealand is six hundred meters thick at its thickest spots. Wow. It's quite quite, quite deep. Uh, the, the ice sheets are kilometres thick, so the uh, East Antarctic ice sheets four and a bit yeah. kilometres thick at the centre. Yeah. And so let's say, for example, we lose all these glaciers. I mean, what's the impact of that? I mean, these, these things are obviously a key part of those environmental conditions at the sites, but are there impacts that are far broader, or is this a sort of just a really big warning sign for us that things are going wrong? I mean, I think there, there are three impacts that we could consider. One is on sea level. It's, prob- it's the most profound. It affects mm-hmm. the whole. Uh, the second is on water resources, particularly important in countries that rely on glacier water, melt water for, yep. to, to survive. This tends to be dry places in the mountains like Peru or um, the, the Tibet or, you know, places where there's not much rain but there's glacier melt. Um, and the third is hazards. So as glaciers retreat, mountain slopes tend to fall down and they can become really dangerous, right? So... Each one of them is quite important, um, but I, we, we focus on uh, on the sea level impacts because we we know that as small glaciers melt in you know New Zealand or the Himalayas or wherever, it it's, uh, it affects Melbourne, it affects New York, it affects Bangladesh. You know, it's a, it's a global impact. Yeah, and, and what sort of uh, you know what sort of sea level rises are you predicting? Given you know we've heard a lot of numbers, usually around the one meter mark, but yeah. with with all the glaciers, I mean, I know the Antarctic aspect of this is enormous and as you said we're talking kilometers of thick ice there not not hundreds of meters but even with the glaciers that seems to be a very large amount of mass that we'd be pumping into the oceans at various sites all over the world so glaciers lock up about a half a meter of sea level rise in total wow uh, most estimates reckon that about half of them will be lost by the end of the century so 20 something centimeters of sea level rise uh, Ice sheets have much more, so and Antarctica has more than 50 metres of sea level equivalent locked up. It's not going to go very quickly. Mm. It takes a long time for all this to be lost. Um, I, I, was a, I was an author in the um, recent IPCC report, uh, SROC, where, and because you can't, no single study can make these estimates of what yep. sea level rise is going to do. You have to bring all the science together. 
And our best estimates were that um, there'd be something like a metre of sea level rise under RCP 8.5. This is the kind of burn it all, um, you know, high emissions um, climate change scenario. Yep. But that could be as little as half a metre or even a bit less under RCP 2.6, which is where we curb our emissions and um, even suck some um, some greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere. Mm. So the, the key, I mean, earlier you asked me about uncertainties, like, you know, is it the surface melting? Is it the sliding? The biggest uncertainty is what we do as right. humans. Yeah. yeah, It's still, but for glaciers and ice sheets, that's still the biggest consideration here. So what we do from this point on is going to make a huge difference. Yeah. Now, one thing I was curious about is we, we talk about um, sea level rise a lot. What I hear less about is salinity levels because we're talking about fresh freshwater um, melt here, aren't we? All, all these glaciers are freshwater. So what, what's the impact on the salinity levels of, of the ocean? How does that change things for us? So it, it's probably going to have some impacts on the climate system itself. By changing the salinity of, of the ocean, you change the ocean circulation, which has climate impacts. I would say they're quite poorly understood now. Mm. The reason for that is that most computer modelling studies of ice sheets are not connected well enough to the climate models. So, you know, climate models and ice sheet models are kind of being run separately. They need to be run together. Right. And if you bring them all together, then you can start to understand those feedbacks. But it's really complicated and uh, and it's a, a very difficult, um, com- you know, computer programming problem to bring those those models together. Yeah. Look, I mean, all, all this stuff is, is incredibly fascinating. Do you find... Um, of late, you've had a lot more students wanting to, to come in and study this because, I mean, I remember when I was a kid and you looked through some of the books and there were some great pictures of glaciers and so forth, but there was never really any indication we had to worry about them. Whereas now, you know, that the idea that they're disappearing or all this, all this sort of work we need to do, are you getting absolutely swamped with, you know, students coming through and saying, you know, I was going to do accounting, but now I'm going to do, I'm going to be a glacial scientist and work out what, you know, or I think there was a term glacial paleontologist I saw a little while back where the, you know, people pulling things out of the melting glaciers, the older ones. How's, how's that going in terms of interest? So the, the big test for me was moving back to Australia. I mean, I grew up in Melbourne, but I've been mm. away for 20-something years. And uh, and I thought, God, will Australians really care about glaciers? We don't have any. Yeah, you know, there we don't no have any. Glaciers, but- yeah. And um, we've had a huge amount of interest at, at undergraduate level. I think that the impacts, the climate impacts I've just been talking about are drawing uh, people into the field. And yeah. it is really different. I mean, when I started studying these things uh, 20-something years ago, uh, I, I liked, I just lo- loved the scenery and the environment. That's what drew me into it. But so, suddenly this has become such a critical field um, and, and that gives us so much more motivation, I guess, you know, to solve the problems, uh, mm. to make better projections of sea level or really understand what, you know, what local communities are going to be impacted by changing meltwater and all that stuff. Yeah. Now, a, a question just before we end uh, that's kind of a bit out of the box, but something I've been fascinated about is these glaciers and a lot of snow and so forth on mountains creates an incredible mass and, and you know, that's pushing down on various locations on the earth. Are there scenarios where um, this is happening around more active volcanic sites where the removal of this ice mass will change volcanic activity? Is that something that we think is going to happen anywhere in, on the world? So there's a, a long-standing scientific hypothesis that uh, deglaciation of volcanoes uh, was one of the big feedbacks causing ice ages. Right, and wow. that's, and, and and these days, who knows? I mean, we're, we're just we're just starting to see this um, this large natural experiment play out, uh, yeah. and uh, 
Yeah. It's, so maybe. And volcanoes, um, you know, they cool the earth for a minute and then they warm it up uh, yep. after the carbon dioxide equilibrates. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Geez, some interesting stuff there. Well, Andrew, look, it's been great talking to you. Congratulations again on this paper coming out. I think um, every time that we get something that has that direct link um, showing the evidence of what many of us have suspected for a very long time, and I know the science is really tough to do that. So congratulations on getting that paper out. And uh, thanks so much for chatting to us today on Einstein and Gago. It's been great. Oh, it's my pleasure. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. So, uh, folks, that was Professor Andrew McIntosh, who is the head of the School of Earth, Atmosphere and Environment at Monash University, doing some really interesting work there on climate. We are almost out of time, so I'm going to have to hand over to the uh, fantastic team from Edith, who are waiting nearby in the next studio. Uh, I can see uh, Cam is already firing up. Uh, Matt is ready. Uh, thank you so much for listening to Einstein and Gogo. Thank you for those who have subscribed to the show. I see uh, Chris KP from the show subscribed to Einstein and Gogo this morning. So did Wayne Stevens from Queenscliff Renewed and Natalie Funtura from Thornbury to Radiotherapy. Thanks so much, guys. We really appreciate it. There's been a few others that we haven't got to, um, but we will do so uh, when we have a moment. Have a great weekend. Remember, science is everywhere, and we will chat to you again next Sunday. Triple R. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.